The power of a divine encounter atop a mountain is that it has the ability to focus our minds, to change our perspective, and to focus our perspective clearly on what God wants to reveal. The mountaintop is often where God reveals himself to us. It's where God has revealed his nature. It's where God has revealed his name. It's where God has revealed his plan for us. It's where God has bought our salvation. The mountaintop is a glorious place to experience something special. A few weeks ago, I experienced something special, and it was not at a time I expected it. I went to the hospital to visit one of our dear sisters in Christ. Uh, Florence Lawson was in the hospital. She's been struggling with cancer a lot lately. We've been praying for, for Florence for some time, and she found herself back in the hospital. There was a bad reaction that she had to some of the cancer medicine, and her thyroid started to uh, react poorly, and she had to be taken first to urgent care and then to the emergency room. And so when I found out about this, I decided I needed to go to the hospital. And I don't always go to the hospital. I don't go visit every single person that's in the hospital. In fact, if you see me peek around the door into your hospital room, it's probably not doing that great for you right now. Um, it's not going to be too good. I have gone, and I've gone to the hospital, and, you know, a few days later, sometimes we're planning a funeral. Or a few days later, someone is being shipped off to another more intense area. But I knew I needed to get to the hospital. I knew I needed to get there. And so, uh, apparently, everyone else in Springfield felt the exact same thing at the exact same time. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of trying to find a parking spot at Cox. It is nearly impossible. You drive around and go through, up and down every spot and then resign yourself to the fact you've got to go to the garage. There's nothing on the first or second or third, and I parked on the very top. It was great. It was a sunny day, and so I parked on the very top and took the elevator down and walked the half a mile across and asked, does anyone know how to get to room 522? How do, well, it's easy. You just go down here, take this corner, go up this tower around here. I'm like, okay. Finally, after an arduous journey, I was at the hallway that led to room 522. I'd been praying the whole time, asking that God would give me the right words to say so that I could be an encouragement to Florence, and I went. And as I peeked my head around the corner to see if she was alone or if others were there, she was in the bed reclining all by herself. And so I announced myself and asked if I could come in, and she was so gracious. And even though I'd been planning and praying that God would give me the right words to say, it was the opposite. As Florence beckoned me to sit down on the edge of her bed, she held my hand and she gave me the words that I needed. She said something remarkable. As she explained the reason that she was in the hospital, having finally gotten transferred out of the ICU and now into a regular room, she explained that her thyroid reacted very poorly to one of these cancer medicines and she went in. Of course, with her uh, husband, Dean, and her son, Dale, at her side, she was there, and she told me of an experience that was remarkable and beautiful. She told me that she saw Jesus. She told me that she saw him. His face was obscured, but she knew that it was the figure of Christ. 
We've heard a story similar to this just a few weeks past. And she explained to me that Jesus told her to scream, told her to scream out. And so she did. She mustered all the strength that she could gather, and she belted out the loudest scream that she could possibly produce. But that which occurs in the spiritual realm does not always have a perfect analog to that which occurs in the physical realm. And in the physical realm, there were doctors and nurses and hospital staff and medical workers busily going about the entire emergency room area. And her loud scream came out, help, help me. And who would be there to hear but the two men who loved her? Her husband, her son, they heard this. They'd already pressed the button for help, and they quickly gathered and rallied more medical workers to come, and Florence was able to receive the care that she needed. And praise God, she was at the 8.30 service this morning, and she's doing well, and we continue to pray for our sister in Christ. But she regaled me of this tale. She said, Andrew, I saw the Holy Spirit in the form of a cloud, and he descended and went in another direction, And she looked at me and she said, Andrew, I'm excited for heaven. I am excited for heaven. But I think there's a few things I'm supposed to take care of first. I said, Florence, of that I have no doubt. And she told me about an angel sitting at the foot of her bed, strengthening and encouraging her. As angels are wont to do, it is their job to minister unto us. And I learned a lesson that day. I was reminded of a lesson that I'd been learning, but I have learned something in my three years as preacher here at Glendale Christian Church. And Florence reminded me of this lesson that I've been learning over the past three years. It's not my job to produce brand new information and dazzle you with something you've never heard before. That is not my job. That is not my job. I've learned that my job is to help focus you, and to sharpen your perspective. That is my job. The reason that I'm here is not to present you some brand new doctrine that you've never heard, though there may be times where new doctrinal understanding is disclosed. My job is not to spin a yarn with a fancy story and tickle your ears, though hopefully I communicate effectively and it is received in a pleasing way. My job as preacher is to focus your mind, to focus your soul on God and what he is doing. My job is to produce within all of this congregation a perspective that is right, a perspective that is heavenward. Florence said, I am excited for heaven. My question for you today is this. Are you? Are you excited for heaven? Do you realize, as the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 22, that you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem? Yes, the mountain that we discuss today is Mount Zion, and it is unlike any of the mountains that we have discussed heretofore. For Mount Zion is not merely a physical place that you can point to, that I can show you a picture. Mount Zion is heaven. Mount Zion is the heavenly city. 
It's the city of God, his dwelling place, and it is that to which we look forward. Mount Zion is code for heaven. Are you excited for heaven? Or is heaven some esoteric, faraway notion, some nebulous concept about which you think very infrequently? If that's the case, I want to dissuade you of that perspective, and I want you to embrace an eternal, heavenward perspective. Heaven is not merely something that takes place far down the line, later when Christ returns or calls me home. Heaven is not merely some place that is other, other than what we have right now. Heaven is a glorious, glorious place that we will spend time everlasting. Everything will be different. Everything will be turned upside down and made right And if our perspective is not accurate, if our focus is not honed in, then as we await our glorious entry to heaven, we will miss far too many opportunities to do the work that God has called us to until he returns or calls us home. Mount Zion is where I want to take you. Mount Zion is what we need to discuss today. Mount Zion did start out as a very physical place. It started out as a very physical place, but its meaning has since expanded. In fact, the very first time that Mount Zion is used in Scripture is in 2 Samuel chapter 5. This is what the Bible records. King David and his men reached or marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites. They were the group that controlled the city. They lived there. The Jebusite said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. How wrong they were. How wrong these arrogant Jebusites were. For the next verse tells us, Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the walls around it from the terraces inward. And David became more and more powerful because Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. Mount Zion is the southernmost hill in the city of Jerusalem. The word Zion literally means fortress or stronghold, bulwark. This incredible place that one should not easily be able to capture, to conquer, to overcome. If you are in Zion, you are in protection. That's what the word Zion means. So Mount Zion is a fortress on a hill, a fortress on this mountain. And the Jebusites, they knew there's no way this puny guy. People should stop thinking David is puny. Giants have this problem. Jebusites have this problem. It does not matter the size of the man, but the God who propels him. And so, this God, Yahweh, propelled David. 
and he conquered that city, and he made it his own. He took up residence. He expanded it. He built the palace. He said, yeah, this is now the city of David, and it's because Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him that he grew more and more powerful. Now, by and by, my very favorite verse in the whole Bible is Acts 9.22. It says, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. I love that verse because I want to grow powerful. Well, the Old Testament analog is right here in 2 Samuel 5. For David became more and more powerful because Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. This is what the city of David would have looked like in the time that he took over Mount Zion. It's just the very southernmost hill of Jerusalem. Now, this area known as the city of David, it had the area that we know as the Temple Mount behind it, but there was no temple yet. David would not even be the one to build the temple. His son Solomon would be the one to build the temple. But it was not a large fortress. It was not a large city. David had to expand it. Now, if we take this and overlay modern Jerusalem, we see that the city of David is actually just a tiny sliver of the whole city of Jerusalem. You can see on the picture on the left, there's a dotted horseshoe that aligns it. And the picture on the right has the city of David portion in red contrast. That's the city of David. In between the... um, Certain valleys in between the Kidron Valley and these other spots is the city of David. And it is still there today. In the pictures, you can see the Temple Mount behind it. And you can go visit this ancient portion of Jerusalem. I did earlier this year with many of you. We went to Jerusalem and we saw the ruins, the archaeological remains of King David's palace. You can walk down this ancient city of David and you can see the place he stood. You can see the place that he conquered and built up. Here's a picture that I took of one of the walls in uh, the outside of the fortress, Mount Zion. Right here. You walk right next to it. You see it. You touch it. It is a glorious thing. Mount Zion expanded in meaning, however. It didn't mean just this fortress that David conquered. Throughout Scripture, it expands to mean the entire city of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount. In fact, in Scripture, it also expanded to include the entire nation of Israel. Not just the city of Jerusalem, but the whole nation of Israel. Zion means the fortress. And there are people who are in God's fortress who know the words of King David and how they ring true. The king wrote in the book of Psalms, chapter 9, Yahweh reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment He will rule the world with righteousness and will render justice for the peoples with equity. Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed, a fortress in times of trouble. Yahweh is Zion. Where Yahweh is, Zion shall be. He is a stronghold. He is a fortress. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to Yahweh who abides in Zion. Proclaim among the peoples what he has done. The key is to trust. The key is trusting Yahweh. When you trust Yahweh, 
he casts into sharp relief your focus. And he focuses your perspective right where it needs to be. Yes, he will never forsake those who trust him. We must seek him. We must sing praises to Yahweh. He abides in Zion. We must proclaim to all the peoples what he has done. When King David wrote that, he was probably thinking of how Yahweh helped him slay the giant or how Yahweh took his people, the Israelites, out of the hands of the slaveholders in Egypt. He was probably thinking of something very different than we think of. And yet, the Holy Spirit knew that someday this exact chapter would be used so that we could proclaim the gospel. Yahweh saves. Proclaim among the people what he has done. And what has he done? He has saved. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. And Yahweh has chosen to save us, to deliver us, to become a fortress, a stronghold for us. And it is our job to proclaim to the world what he has done. This, I think, is one way that we can describe the gospel message to the lost and dying world around us. Yahweh is the name of the perfect God. Yahweh, who is the one who has always existed, who must exist, who can do anything that can be done, is perfectly loving, and can know everything that can be known, has always existed, and he exists as three in one. Yahweh is not merely a personal being. He is a tri-personal being. And Yahweh created everything in this world. Everything was created by him and for him and through him so that in all things he might have the supremacy. And the very best thing that Yahweh ever created was human beings made in his image. Because we are made in God's own image, we are endowed with rationality. The capacity to give and receive love. The capacity to choose. But we have exercised that capacity poorly. And we have chosen to sin. Just as Eve and Adam chose to sin, they chose to violate the one law that God had given them. They chose to try to be like God. They chose to be too big for their own britches, and they took the fruit that was forbidden, and God said, no more. Yahweh separated fallen humanity from himself, and this is a big problem. It's a problem that rears its ugly head in everyone's life, for if you turn on the TV, you see the problem of sin everywhere. Strife, enmity, malice, war, famine, all sorts of problems all trace their origin back to sin. And the entire story of the Bible is the story of God trying to reach out to his people and draw them back to himself. And he needed to do it because no matter how hard we try, we can't get the job done. No matter how tall a tower we build, we can't get to heaven. No matter how hard we work, we can't labor our way to the Lord. No matter how much good we do, we cannot find ourselves in his grace by our works. There is nothing we can do to overcome the infinite gap, the gulf, the chasm between perfect God and imperfect humanity. No matter how hard we try, we are at a loss. And yet God would not allow us to stay lost. His love drove his death. 
And so Yahweh the Father sent Yahweh the Son to earth. We know him as Jesus. Yahweh saves. And he stepped off the throne room of heaven. He donned human flesh. And he came in the form of helpless babe to grow into the man who is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, Yahweh saves. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He taught the best messages. The highest ethics were presented in his sermons. And he drew his people back to himself. But the world did not understand him. And so our enemy, the adversary, the devil, the one with whom he has enmity, the one that God placed enmity between, saw that Jesus died on the cross. But this was no victory for our enemy, for this played right into God's plan. For God's love drove God's death. And even though our enemy, the adversary, the devil, thought he'd won a great victory the day Jesus died on the cross, it was a mere three days later he realized the categorical error of his ways. And bursting forth on glorious day, up from the grave he arose. And coming back to life, being resurrected from the dead, Yahweh saves, vindicated the sacrifice that he made on the cross. He took our punishment. You and I deserve to be punished for following in the footsteps of sinful Eve and Adam. We all have chosen poorly. And whether we have chosen poorly one time or a million times, one is all it takes to be separated from God. And the only way to make up for that separation is death. Either you will pay for your own sin with your own death, or Jesus will pay for your sin with his death. But if you place your faith in him, that means you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, having died on the cross for your sins. If you believe this in your heart, if you trust in your very being that God has done this and he will do what he said he'll do, then you are saved. You are justified. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, having died on the cross, and you are justified. You are saved. And everything changes. Filled with the Holy Spirit, you are now enabled, capable of doing the good that God created you to do. And you can join the chorus of those who proclaim what Yahweh has done. And more and more can be saved by his good works. And they need to be. Because in this world, as Paul will tell us in Philippians 3, there are many who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Yes, we need to proclaim what Yahweh has done because there are so many enemies of the cross. You know that there are enemies of the cross. They're not just merely fallen human beings, but there are spiritual enemies and entities of the cross that are opposed to God's work and to God's kingdom. We must be different. The enemies of cross, they have the enemies of the cross, they have their minds set on earthly things. It's their focus that's inaccurate. It's their perspective that needs to be changed. Not so the Christian. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to have the right perspective. 
Sometimes it can be hard to have the right perspective because the enemies of the cross will remind us every single day of how rotten things really are. We'll hear about how countries invade other countries. We'll hear about how our political candidate lost. We'll hear about how our favorite sports team was vanquished. We'll hear about how our favorite comic book character has a new woke writer that's ruining the storyline. We'll hear about something that drives us batty. We'll check our 401k and we'll realize that it has less now than it did last week. We'll look at our bank account. We'll look at our government. We'll look at the border. We'll look at the problems of this world and we will see enmity, strife, and problems. And it's very easy for our focus and our perspective to be right here on temporal things. But that's not what we're called to focus upon. We're called to focus on the cross. We're called to focus, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for everything we do is about Jesus. It was the love of the Father that sent Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit within us who points to Jesus. Everything about us points to Jesus. May it never be that our perspective and focus drifts from Jesus. May it always be that our focus and our perspective is ever on Jesus. The Holy Spirit indwells me and makes me a temple of him, a temple of the Holy Spirit for Jesus Christ's glory. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. It is my job to proclaim Yahweh saves. Jesus died because he loved And now I get to reign with him because of his great love. It's exactly like Clay said from Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He died for us. He died for us to redeem us, to save us, to propel us, to compel us, to show us a better way. Not so that we could be distracted by the world. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. I am not an American Christian. I am a Christian who is an ambassador to America. I love the country in which we live, but make no mistake, my true citizenship is in heaven. I just live here. I'm not from around here. That needs to be our perspective. That needs to be our focus. Too easy is it for the world to distract us by its shiny things or its tarnished things. Too easy is it for the world to say, focus here, look at how great it is. Or focus here, look at how dull it is. And both of those point to a greater reality. The shiniest thing on earth will be walked upon like streets in heaven. The most dull thing on earth will be transformed and made glorious anew. And I know that because I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things this world tells me to focus on is how age and time and gravity are wrecking my body. I know this to be true. I know this to be so. I see it every single day as I get grayer and grayer. I see it every single year as it gets harder and harder to work out. I see it all the time. I see it in those I love who get cancer. I see it in those I love who die young. I see it in those I love and the problems that they face. But someday the Lord will return. And when he does, when that glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, Yahweh saves, returns, like we talked about last week, he will transform our lowly bodies into his glorious body. And we need that to happen. We need that to happen because we are fighting an uphill battle against time and death. 
Sure. We all get older, we all get sicker, we all get fatter, we all get grayer, and eventually we all die or Jesus comes back. One or the other happens, and that's it. But when he comes back, everything will change. Everything will change. The body in which you live now will not be the body in which you live always. The body that you have now that continues to have problems, that continues to have adverse reaction to cancer medicine, will not be the body that you drive always. There will be a better body, a resurrection body, a transfigured body that will change. And that will be the body in which you exist in heaven. In heaven, you will not be dis embodied. You will not be separated from your body. Heaven is a very physical place, as the scriptures will soon tell us. We must understand that heaven is where God is. Zion is where God is. Yahweh abides in Zion. So when we hear the words of the psalmist in chapter 125, those who trust Yahweh are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. If you trust in Yahweh, if you trust in Yahweh saves, you will never be shaken. Though the world will attempt to flip, shake, and upset everything about your life, if you trust Yahweh, you can never be shaken because you, like Mount Zion, will have God abiding in you. This is very, very important. And it brings us back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and following. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For Yahweh, your God, is a consuming fire. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And because of that, we owe God worship and thanks. We thank him for what he's done, Yahweh saves. We proclaim the gospel message to everyone we meet, Yahweh saves. And we worship Yahweh acceptably. And did you notice how the writer of Hebrews describes acceptable worship? It has two primary components, reverence and awe. Now, reverence and awe are very, very important. And when we think about some of the great concepts in the Bible, there are a couple that are very close to reverence and awe. They're both fear and love. Fear and love both have reverence and awe as primary components. Think about fear. Fear certainly involves reverence and awe, for we revere the one who has the power to punish, and we are in awe of the one who can punish so greatly. But fear itself has to do with punishment. Now, fear is okay. In fact, fear is the beginning. We all started out fearing. Fear is the beginning of knowledge. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. Fear is appropriate. The man who fears Yahweh fears rightly. And the reason that fear is so important is because it is tangentially connected to both reverence and awe. And yet, as you trust in Yahweh, as you trust in Yahweh saves the Lord Jesus Christ, something marvelous happens. Our focus shifts from punishment to Christ. 
our perspective turns from all the bad to the one who makes it all good. You see, the other concept that is so closely connected with both awe and reverence is love. You know this to be true. You remember when you first fell in love with her? You were in awe of her beauty. You were one who revered her and wanted all your time spent with her. You know, love is connected with reverence and with awe, just as fear is. But something special happens, and as James 4, 18 and 19 tells us, just as perfect love drove God's death, perfect love drives something else. Perfect love drives fear away. For fear has to do with punishment. But the one who loves Yahweh, the one who trusts Yahweh, no longer fears punishment. And the reason we don't have to fear punishment is because Yahweh saves, took our punishment for us. Yeah, I deserve it. I know. I've done a lot of bad things, and I deserve to be punished for them. And punishment was already paid by the Lord Jesus. He took my penalty. He took my punishment. And by placing my faith, my trust, my belief, my loving obedience in him, his perfect righteousness covers me. The penalty for my sins has already been paid. Fear has been replaced with love. Now, fear includes reverence and awe. Love includes reverence and awe. We should be thankful to Yahweh, and we should worship him acceptably with reverence and awe. The choice is if you will have reverence and awe mixed with fear, or if you will have reverence and awe mixed with love. For fear has to do with punishment. But if you truly trust Yahweh and Yahweh saves, believe that your punishment has already been rendered in full and replace that fear with love. And what does love do? Love does all sorts of things. Love does the work that God created in advance us to do. Love proclaims. Love propels. Love does all of the works that God created us to do. We do not obey out of fear. We who are mature in Christ must obey out of love. For the man who loves Yahweh still has reverence, still has awe, but has moved past fear and operates out of a place of love. This is the man who understands someday Zion within will be his dwelling place. Not merely God dwelling in me, but us dwelling in God's presence. That is, in fact, exactly what John describes in Revelation chapter 21. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city Zion, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
the new heavens and the new earth, Zion come to earth, will be heaven. This is heaven. This is the place that God wipes away every tear. This is the place where there is no more death. There is no mourning. There is no more crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And it is replaced with the new order. I look forward to heaven. I join Florence in excitement for heaven. Yeah, I still think there's some stuff he needs me to do before he calls me home or returns. But if it happens today, perhaps today the Lord shall return. Very well. It is very well with my soul should that be the case. But until he comes or until I go, I have a job to do. And that job is to proclaim what Yahweh has done. That job is to proclaim that this world that so many people focus on is not worthy of our perspective and focus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Yahweh saves. For someday, all this will pass away. And there will be a new reality for us in which to dwell. So this week, I want you to do something. I want you to read Revelation chapter 21 and 22. It's the very end of the book, and I want you to read the last two chapters of the whole thing. I want you to read Revelation 21 and 22 about this new heaven and this new earth, this new Zion, this new Jerusalem, descending from above so that God can dwell with us. I want you to read about the reversal of the curse. I want you to read about how God wants our perspective to be on his work. And then I want you to memorize Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we also eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to memorize Romans or Philippians 3.20 to remind yourself that your citizenship is not merely here, but you're a citizen of heaven. And our focus and perspective must be heavenward. I want you to contemplate Mount Zion, which is heaven. And I want you to contemplate whether your focus is temporal or eternal. Is it easy for you to get distracted by the things of this earth? Or by focusing on Jesus, do they become strangely dim and you have your perspective on him and his eternal glory? And then I want you to pray. And I want you to pray these ways, these words. Yahweh, instill in me an ever-increasing excitement for heaven. I want you to be so excited for heaven that you can't help but talk about what Yahweh has done. Because you are so compelled by his love that you want more people to be there with you more people to be here with us, more people to share in that eternal perspective. And so, I want you to do all this this week. But right now, I want you to stand with me. For we're about to pray, we're about to sing, and during this final song, if there's any person in this room who has not placed their faith in Yahweh saves, today's the day. Come on down, and I want you to proclaim before this whole congregation, Yahweh saves. If there's anybody who wants to join this fellowship of believers, come on down, and you can be...